Today's reading is from Genesis 2, 8 through 14. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pison. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the Lord of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Thank you, Dave. Well, uh, for those of you I don't know, my name's Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus. And uh, I've shared this, not this story, but the sentiment before. So if it sounds familiar, just forgive me. I'm still working on my creativity. But uh, I was um, recently on a flight this summer uh, alone. I, uh, and I sat next to the chatty person on the plane. Have you ever, ever sat next to the... Some of you are the chatty person on the plane, I, can, I think. Uh, anyway, so this person really wanted to talk, and that's what, you know, people are boarding and making conversation. You know, on an airplane, it's, it's almost inevitable, right, that uh, this will come up. It's like, you know, why are you flying to such and such a place? Are you from here? Are you from there? What's, uh, where are you going? And, uh, you know, I was flying to Indianapolis to meet up with my family. I had stayed uh, in Kansas City to do a memorial service, and I was, I was meeting them in Indianapolis. And uh, as someone in my profession, you, you know when this kind of conversation starts uh, that, that there's a very uh, awkward moment coming. And uh, this, was, this was it for her. So she, she heard memorial service. She said, I'm sorry uh, for your loss. Was it a family member? Was it a friend? And I said, actually, it was, it was a, someone from ch- my church. Uh, I'm, I did the service. I'm actually a, a pastor there. And, and when you say that, you actually, sometimes you can see their face change right in that moment. <laughs> Uh, when you tell them that. Because let's, I mean, let's, let's face it. So in, increasingly, like religious people are weird enough. Religious people are weird. Uh, there's kind of increasing sense that that's kind of outside uh, the norm. Uh, but if you're a religious professional, then you are really weird. You're way out there. And this woman is realizing, right, that she's just engaged with one of those weirdos and uh, that religion has now come up, right? And I can now ask her about it. So she doesn't want to talk to me anymore. And, and, <laughs> right? And that's what she, I love it, right? You grab the, like, how do I survive a water landing pamphlet? <laughs> Any, anything, anything but to keep talking to this guy. And I totally get it. I get it. It's no, nothing against this, this poor lady who just wanted to have a good conversation. But I had to ask myself, uh, in that moment, I, and even as I've prepared this message, you know, why does that happen? Why are we so afraid to talk about religion and religious belief in public? And uh, maybe more uh, on, a, on a larger scale, you know, why in the public square of ideas, uh, as we make incredibly important moral decisions 
uh, societal decisions that we need to be together on. Why, increasingly, are religious beliefs not fair game there? Uh, not just, I'm not just talking about Christian beliefs. I'm talking about any religious belief. And, and uh, We've been in a series, if you've been with us the last few weeks, on um, stories we tell ourselves. Uh, basically, uh, and sometimes as, as individuals, the stories we tell ourselves, but sometimes as a culture, as a society, the stories we tell ourselves, the w- ways of seeing the world uh, that we hardly even notice or think about anymore. We just do them uh, as a culture, as a society, and, and taking those and comparing them to the biblical story, specifically that story as it's, as it's begun in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And, uh, and our story this week is, is this. We've kind of encapsulated it in this idea. It's that religion should be kept private. Don't, don't talk about it. Keep it to yourself. That's for you. It's not for us. It has no effect on us. Uh, and, it's, and it's easy to see why that is such a, a popular sentiment, idea. Um, I mean, family dinners and relationships are ruined by talk of religion. Maybe you've been a part of one of those. Uh, even worse, people fight in the name of religion. People kill in the name of religion. Uh, nations oppress others in the name of religion, right? There's a reason we've said, don't bring this up. <laughs> I get it. And not, and not to totally bore you to death, but there are real historical and philosophical reasons for that sentiment, especially in our culture. You know, it, you know in an effort in, in the United States to, it, it's, a, it's a pluralistic uh, culture, country, lots of different worldviews here. And in an effort to kind of keep the peace, we have a lot of um, uh, re- uh, uh, political philosophers and thinkers basically saying, uh, you need to, to make this thing work, you've got to keep religion out of the public square. You just don't, just don't talk about it. And uh, perhaps one of the most influential in that regard is a guy named John Rawls, who is a, a political philosopher, who said, religion has no place in the public square. Uh, the only thing we should talk about together are things that are empirically, scientifically, objective fact. That's what we should talk about. That's what we should base our policy on. That's what we should make decisions on and, and, and nothing else. Which, as an aside, I think it's funny that, um, you know, my sermon is really encapsulated in a guy named John Rawls. And, and when Tom does this, it's in Drake, the rapper. And I don't understand <laughs> how I got John Rawls and Tom got Drake. But anyway, um, We've really internalized this as a cult. When you really start thinking about it, we've really internalized this idea. Religion is, is private. We, it's even to the point where it's incredibly awkward to talk about faith on a plane. You go around the world, it's not like that. Uh, that's something kind of not, not unique to our culture, but it's something specific about it. That's, that's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, but we've so internalized this that it's like, no, 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 we don't, that we don't talk about that in, in public. Um, that's, for, that's for you and, and your, your religious group. So, uh, what does the biblical story say to that? How, how do we respond to that? And let, that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And by the way, we're, we're continuing in our effort uh, to address questions you may have during the sermon. So, text into this number. Uh, we've been uh, addressing some of those questions on Facebook Live on Mondays. Uh, it's, it, we do it live and then it reposts so you can watch it later. Uh, so you don't have to be there right when it starts at, at three, uh, 3.15 or so uh, on Monday. But we need your, the questions have been really, really good. So keep, keep that coming. I think we're going to get some good ones today as well. So the first part I want to I talk about with you around this cultural idea that, that religion should be private. The first thing I want to say is why I think that's a good idea. Let's, let's start with, you know, what we agree with there. 
Um, there's a sense in which religion really should be private. It, to, to be real religion, it actually has to be private. And here, here's what I, I mean by that. Uh, the Bible teaches, and our, I think our culture generally agrees, that religion should not be coerced or forced upon people. It's a deeply personal matter of the conscience. It's a sacred thing to each human being. And the state, the government, the powers that be, whatever, should not be in the business of telling people what to believe. Um, and, and, and this idea of uh, religion should be kept private kind of reinforces that. It's, it, it says that's your thing. Uh, so put it another way, that idea, it, it rightly condemns religious violence and oppression. That's a good thing. We should all... Uh, condemn religious violence and oppression. And as a person of faith, in my Christian tradition, I have to own and, and, and repent and confess that our tradition of Christianity, at times historically, has committed violence and oppression in the name of religion. And also currently, you don't have to look far to see current examples of, of a myriad of religious traditions that kill in the name of God today. And I, I think we can all agree that's not what we want. And religion must be kept private, this idea. It didn't come from nowhere. It's to protect against stuff like that. And that's a good thing. It gets that part right. It, it also gets right uh, this, that we were each designed to make a personal choice for ourselves around religious belief and not be told what to do by the crowd. So there's kind of like this, you know, the government, the powers of be shouldn't tell you, but also the crowd shouldn't tell you. And there's been a tendency in more traditional cultures, if you've noticed, right, to assume that religion is basically an inherited thing. You're, uh, it's a part of your clan, your family, your nation. What it means to be your people is to believe certain things. And many of you, no doubt, on a really small scale, grew up in families where it's like, no, 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 this is who we are. This is our religion. You don't question that. You don't get to decide for yourself. Uh, you know, I'll give you an, an example. We partner with a ministry in Iran. Uh, they plant churches in Iran, and people, missionaries on the ground with, with uh, Elam is the name of the ministry, uh, talk about all the time how they're interacting with these young Iranian uh, folks who in no meaningful way are practicing Islam. I mean, it's, not, it's really not a big part of their everyday lives, that they're not, they, they're not like devout, and yet you ask them, what's your, what's your religious affiliation? What do you, they say, well, we're Muslim, because to be an Iranian is to be Muslim, right? The, the, they, they, the two go together. And, it, and many Christian people have a similar attitude. Well, I was born in this family, I was baptized at that church, so that's what I am, even if I don't go there anymore. So, but, but this idea that religion should be, should be private, that it's personal, it helps to correct that. We can affirm that. It is a personal choice, what you believe about God, what you think of Him. In fact, this is one of the most central teachings of Christianity, is that you individually must choose this. Uh, your, your last name, your, uh, the country you're born in, your religious affiliation, it doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing on your salvation or your, or your claims to the truth. We're all personally accountable, and, to, and we all have to take responsibility for our religious choices. So take Genesis 2, just as an example. Uh, the story, the biblical story we've been looking at, Adam and Eve... <clears throat> Are the great are great counterexample. So, they have the right lineage. They are created directly by. They have the best father you could possibly imagine, right? The best last name you can have. Uh, Adam and Eve are in the right place. They're born in the right country. 
They're born in the Garden of Eden where everything is right. Adam and Eve have the right God, the right religious beliefs. Uh, They are walking with the God of the universe in the garden daily is the idea that we get. They were in the right place at the right time with the right God, but they were still not right when they chose sin. And ultimately, because they rejected God personally, personal trust in Him, uh, they were condemned. And they made a personal choice that ruined them and God's good world. And we, and we can do the same thing, right? Religious is a deeply personal choice, and that bears out in the biblical story. So, so there's a real sense which the biblical story does affirms this idea that religion is a private, personal thing. But, and here's kind of the second point, but Uh, It can never be only private. It is a private thing, but it can't only be private. And I I just want to give you three reasons for that. Two of them are kind of cultural, societal, and the last one is is more biblical. So, first, to tell people your religion must be private only, keep it to yourself. Uh, The first problem with that is that that's immoral. It's actually the wrong thing to do. Uh, making people check their religious conviction at the door before they can enter a policy debate or get a job or enter a university, that's, Im- that's just wrong. That's oppressive. And Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, he was recently speaking at a Veritas forum on religion in the public square, and he put this really, really well. He said, excluding religious convictions from public discourse, from co- pu- public conversation, is a really, really good way to marginalize a lot of people. Because no matter how well-crafted or thoughtful or well-intended our effort is to get religion out of the public square, to keep it private, at the end of the day, we are simply telling members of organized religion that they can speak and participate in our society only if they check the most vital part of themselves at the door. Right? That's not a good thing. And and I, I think we are seeing the fruit of that in some ways, not, not every way, but in some ways in the attacks on free speech that you're seeing in our country, right? In an effort to silence, uh, uh, keep, keep religion out of the public and views that are deemed as uh, unscientific or thoughtless, right? People are being shouted down, not engaged with, but just shouted down. And uh, sociologists, a guy named Jonathan Haidt, he is, a, he is an atheist um, himself, uh, but even he has noticed, he is, he is rightly condemning that kind of oppression of thought and speech, especially at our universities, especially of a religious kind. He says, this is not who we want to be. So it's, it's immoral. It's wrong. It's wrong to tell people they can only participate in society when they keep quiet about their most cherished beliefs. For all religious traditions. Okay, but, but this idea that religion... Uh, must be totally private, is also uh, irrational. It's immoral, but it's also irrational. Uh, it isn't true to how things actually work. Here's, here's what I mean, right? So all religious belief has a public effect, even if we don't name it religious belief. And we work really hard to define, you know, to say, well, that's not a religious belief, that's just a fact. Well, is it? And here's where, def- here's where definitions become so important, because often when people say the word religious, the phrase religious belief, um, what they mean is belief in the supernatural, right? It's like, keep your religion out of here, which means keep your idea, any supernatural explanation of anything, keep it out of here, whether that's God or whatever. But that, that is actually just a specific kind of religious belief. 
a better definition of religious belief, I think, is, is any claim or conviction that's about something that is good, true, or beautiful that is not scientifically provable. That is a religious claim. That's a religious belief. Something It's a claim or statement about the true, the good, or the beautiful that is not scientifically provable. Now, if you define it that way, right, that means that whenever... Uh, If you define it that way, it means we have to admit together that most of our public discourse today is deeply religious, whether acknowledged or not. Okay, when we talk about justice, care for the vulnerable, right and wrong, uh, policy, what's good for human flourishing as a society, these these are bringing in unnamed, unexamined assumptions about what is a human person, what makes a good person? What makes a good society? What makes for a moral society? How do humans flourish and grow and thrive? Right? None of those questions are answered by looking in a microscope, are they? None of them. They're deeply rooted assumptions about, what, about who we think human beings are. They are religious beliefs. They're religious convictions by another name. And you'll, you see the fruit of that in the public conversation. You see this is part of the reason why questions like even just a basic question, who are the poor and the vulnerable, are so divisive. So many people, including myself, right, we would argue that, for example, the unborn should be in that category. The poor and the, they're, they're poor and they're vulnerable and they deserve legal protection. There's a whole other group of people who say no. Uh, the, the most important thing in that conversation is the fundamental right of a human being to, to choose their destiny, their future. So on the one hand, right, every life matters. On the other hand, we de- who, de- who decides? How do- and how do you even have a conversation without appealing to deeply religious conviction on either side? Who, who, who gets to be human who, and who doesn't? And how, and how do we decide? And who gets to decide? Uh, when, a, when a person of a traditional belief uh, refuses to do a ceremony they consider sacred, uh, when are they doing that for religious belief? And when are they simply just discriminating against people? And how do we decide? And who gets to decide? Who gets to participate in that conversation? And on what grounds? And I'm just giving you two hot, top, two hot button issues, right? We are unable to deal with those questions because we say keep religion should be private. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It, it's, it ends up being irrational. At the end of the day, uh, we basically uh, refuse to acknowledge that public discourse of any consequence is deeply informed by religious conviction on all sides, doesn't matter what your tradition is. And, and in practice, I think what we end up doing is we don't really say religious speech should be kept private. We say certain religious speech should be kept private. And others are fine. <laughs> uh, it's It's irrational. And it, it can lead to marginalization. It's immoral. <clears throat> for the Christian community, okay, for us at, at, at here, here in the church, our, there's another reason why we can't totally agree with that sentiment. And it's that our, our religion can't be just private because God's story and plan for redemption is profoundly public. The story we cling to is not a private one. It's a universal one. It has universal ramifications for everybody. So look at Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
We talked a little bit about work last week, the story of work we tell. Uh, but those two words, what we didn't say, those two words, work and keep, uh, they actually show up again in Scripture around places of worship, especially around the, what, what the religious uh, leaders are supposed to do to maintain the tabernacle, for example, the temple, the place of meeting between God and humanity. This word, these, this word group shows up again. And the, the idea here is that the garden in God's original design was a temple, that all the world was sacred space to God. And what stands out to you when you really read Genesis 1 and 2 um, this, with this idea, this lens that, okay, the world is actually God's temple that he's indwelling with Adam and Eve without sin, you begin to see the seamless, nature, the seamless design of life that existed in the garden. We think of religion as I come into a building, I do my thing privately, and I go back out to the real world. Okay, that's not the garden. The garden was my work, my marriage, my relationships are all a part of the sacred worship space with God. See the seamlessness of that? And then the tabernacle became, after sin, God's representative space that went out into the world to win it back. That's God's rede- so you look at God's plan of redemption uh, in the Bible. You know, after the fall in Genesis 3, uh, one of the first big things God does, he calls a guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make a nation that will be a blessing to the world. He says, by you, the, the, uh, the uh, nations of the world will be blessed. So Israel becomes a nation by which the world can get to know God. That's public. So you fast, that, so you fast forward a few thousand years, and then Abraham's family has, be, has become a nation, Israel. And then there's a, there's a man born from Israel. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah of that people. And he comes for, for many reasons, but one of the central ones, Jesus says in Matthew 16, is the fulfillment of this theme of our public witness. He says, he's talking to Peter here, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, my people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus says he has come to start a church. It's one of the primary reasons he came, a people. So, so <laughs> keep it this, So the, the story of God moved from a garden to a man named Abraham, to a nation named Israel, to bless the world, to the Messiah of that nation named Jesus, who continues to push the presence of God into his creation through his people, the church. It culminates in the temple, that theme of God's seamless space of worship is entrusted now to the church. We are the public witness of what God is doing in the world. That's part of what the church is. You look at, look at Ephesians 2, Paul says, uh, in, uh, in Jesus, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think temple, think Garden of Eden. He says, you, the church, are being built to be that garden again, to be that temple where the world can meet with me. So, we don't often think of local churches like that, do we? Right? Local churches are the place where God's presence lives and breathes and is formed together. And, and our mission is not a private one. It can't be. And if you had any doubt, Jesus makes it clear. One of the last things he says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's public, profoundly public. We can't be private in our faith. 
merely private. We, we, are, we are public witnesses. We are called to a public declaration to bear witness of what God has done and what he is doing. So the question remaining for us this morning is not, should our faith be public? It should be. The question is, how should it be public? What, how do we do this well? Do we, do we present, do we have a public religion that's worth living? And how do we do that? How do we avoid the pitfalls of the past? How do we avoid coercion and oppression and condemnation? How do we use our influence and power for good and not for evil? And there's a lot we could say around this. I want to focus just on, on three things. Okay, so first, first thing we can do is build up the local church. Build up the local church. As we said, kind of culturally, there's some good to this idea to keep religion private. One of the most devastating things that that has done in the church is it has led to this increasing plausibility that me and Jesus is all that matters. This is a pri- I have a private story of salvation for me, and that's all that matters. And then the local church is really the local church is really about meeting my needs or making it's it's about uh, me liking it or not. Right? I have a choice about it about whether I want to engage there or not. The centrality of the local church gets lost for a private, individualistic faith. And we begin to look at the church as consumers, right? We begin to get distracted by questions like, is this vibe, is this vibe with me? Is, this, is, the, is the music the, the greatest thing in the world or not? Am I, do, I, do people look like me here? Do I fit in? Uh, we were, and we get distracted by those instead of asking better questions like, how do I become more like Jesus here? Um, how is this church loving its neighbors, its community, its world? How do I get on mission with this group of people? And we slowly begin to believe that we can have faith in Jesus and not be concerned about building what Jesus loves, which is the church. The metaphor of the bride is applied only to the church. The vibrancy and health of a local church, it, it can be rarely considered, and we get focused on individual faith experience and preference, and I'm a pastor, I can do this. It's so drilled into us. Okay, but this is the place where the story of God is lived out and and defined for the world. This is where they see it in action. And before anyone's going to take the story we have seriously in the public square, we got to live it out in this very room. Okay, this is the place where new generations are trained and equipped and entrusted with the story of redemption. If we neglect this place, this people, um, we will not have a faith to make public for very long. The local church is the center of the story God is telling now. It is his plan A for the world. In, it, it, Jesus is the head, but this is the plan. So back to Ephesians, we are the place where God wants to dwell, that the world may know him. It's among us. So with our time, talent, our treasure, what God's gifted us with. Let's invest in this place, this people together. Let's build a local church. Okay, second thing we can do as Christians uh, as, is, is practice civility. Practice civility. If we want an open public square, if we want a seat at the table, uh, we need to create space for others at the table. So let's treat other people with respect, even if we disagree with them. If, if Genesis is true, then every person is an image bearer of God. See, we, we believe that's, that it's essential to our story. So let, let's acknowledge, respect, and love even those who have very different views. Th- this should be a natural, intuitive thing 
for followers of Jesus, the civility idea. Um, if you've no, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, our world is in desperate need of civil people. Uh, this is not going well right now. We, uh, we above, <laughs> we, we are equipped with resources in our tradition as Christians to be civil people. So let's do it. Let's love people not for their ideas, but because of their intrinsic value as image bearers of God when we engage with them. Even if we disagree fundamentally, it doesn't matter. Uh, and I, I think a key practice for us there is being slow to speak and quick to listen, especially on the internet. Uh, not just on the internet, but I want to focus there because it amazes me how easily, and I do this, how easily for those of us who claim to love Jesus, we, we forget his commands to love our enemy, to remove the speck from our own eye the second I get on social media. All that goes out the window. We say and do things there that we would never, never, never do in person. So, quick to listen, slow to speak. I, I also think it means uh, getting outside our own echo chambers of, of thoughts and ideas. Um, it is easier now than ever to only listen to voices, opinions that you already agree with. Um, in terms of, you know, you, you watch one channel on TV, you read one newspaper, you read one certain kind of book, you listen to certain kind of, I mean, there's lots of different media out there, but I think part of how we can grow in, in this civility is to have, uh, is to expose ourselves to different views. Uh, not necessarily agreeing with them, but pay attention to them, know them, engage with them. Uh, understand the best version and arguments and ideas of, some, of someone who's different and then engage with that person as a human being whom Jesus loves and not as an enemy who needs to be argued into submission. Uh, we are not on earth to win arguments. That is not our job. We are here to win people to God's story of redemption by God's help. Yes, that means engaging with ideas, but it's not limited to that. It's how we do that. Okay, practice civility. We can be a civil people. We, Christians, should, this should be a virtue we, we have nailed down. This is something we have the resources to do. We know every human being matters to God deep, profoundly. We can engage with them that way. Practice civility. Okay, last thing. Um, third thing. Un, embrace, unashamedly embrace our fundamental. Embrace our fundamental. And what do I mean by that? <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's uh, September 10th today. Uh, some of you were around for September 11th, uh, those many years ago. Uh, and you uh, maybe remember that, the, that the, the public conversation that kind of happened right in the midst of 9-11 and even after kind of rippled out uh, was this idea that public religion, religion in public, took a real big hit. Because suddenly now we've got this example, right, of religious fundamentalism and the violence it can do. And a lot of people were saying, this is why we've got to keep religion out of the public square, because this is what happens. This, is, this has no place in public. Uh, we can't uh, engage with this. And, uh, you know, to, just to qualify that, right, of course, Stalin was an atheist, he, he, and he killed millions of people. Uh, Pol Pot was not, uh, did not have a religious platform. He killed millions of people. The problem isn't religion. Uh, because we all have, if, if our definition of religious belief is true, everybody has religion, right? 
even if it's not acknowledged, if it's not said out loud, you don't, you don't have a space of worship, you don't have a, a tax ID number, whatever. We all have religion. Um, the problem isn't religion. And we all have ideas that can lead us to oppress and hate and coerce if, if we allow them to. The question is not, do you have fundamental beliefs? And if you say no, then you can participate. If you say yes, then you can't. That's not the question. We all have fundamentals. We all have non-negotiable beliefs about what is true and good and beautiful. Every human being is a fundamentalist in that sense. The question is, what is your fundamental? What is it? What is at the core of everything you are and believe and do? And I want to remind us that the central claim of Christianity, the center of our religion, the center of our story, whether we live up to it or not, is God dying on a cross for his enemies, saying over them as he's dying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. See, that... that That son forgave his enemies through excruciating death on the cross. And then that son invites his enemies when he's raised from the dead, enemies in this room, into his story of redemption. Right? That son offers salvation to anyone and everyone who will come to him. And I know of no more powerful world-changing fundamental than that. There's incredible power there. So live out your fundamental. Be be that fundamentalist. Together, let's be the suffering, steadfast, loving, immovable people of Christ. Who called sin, sin. He's not afraid of the truth. But he suffered and died to save sinners of whom, as Paul says, we are the foremost Our religion is not a door that we slam in people's faces. It is a community where all are welcome to receive grace and forgiveness in Jesus' name. And I know I have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. And yet, I believe God meets us where we are in in many of our failures to live up to who we should be as a church. And he invites us again to this story to remind us who we are and how we were saved. That's a story worth living. So let's live it. Pray with me. Father, we are in such a divisive, hurtful time in many ways. Perhaps not as uniquely as we think it is, but it feels like it right now to me. God, by your spirit, equip this church, equip your people to share the good news we have in a winsome and loving, compassionate, gracious way. God, may we be salt and light as you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.